to Hong Kong. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Europe is on its back. Now it's really impacting everything. Economic efficiencies, which means more job opportunities. More stable investment has been the preferred asset class. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Greece faces crunch talks in Brussels, buoyed by a show of support at home. Saudi stocks advance to a 12-week rally as oil gains fan the Gulf markets rally. And China's credit expansion boosts bank and industrial stocks. All eyes are on a meeting today between uh, the Eurozone finance heads and Greece. The question is, will they reach an agreement on a bailout? We'll ask our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Then we look at the recent euphoria over last week's upward trend on oil prices. And joining us to discuss this is Nomura Securities Managing Director, Anthony Carango. Our last guest uh, this morning is Hong Kong International Arbitration Center's Managing Counsel, Ruth Stackpole-Moore. She'll tell us more about uh, Asia's role on commercial arbitration. Alex Wong of Ample Capital is back with us as guest host today. Good morning, Alex. Morning, Juanita. So uh, all things oily, all things greasy. How is that for a Monday morning? Oh, uh, today we should be a little bit good, I think, uh, for Hong Kong. Uh, we have seen the uh, bond prices to ease a lot in the U.S. Uh, during last week. So that means that people are less uh, concerned about the political situations and other things, actually. So, And also we had gone through a series of bad data in China. And uh, we had a uh, health firm uh, after that. So uh, probably we would see some improvement in Hong Kong market. Well, I don't know uh, if uh, the people in Greece are thinking uh, less seriously on a political basis. Thousands of Greeks are taking part in demonstrations in Athens ahead of the talks in Brussels on the new Greek government's bid to revise its bailout. They want an end to austerity ahead of the meeting of Eurozone finance ministers later today tasked with finding a way to stop Athens quitting the European currency. The BBC's Mark Lowen is in the Greek capital right now. The big pro-government rally has taken place in central Athens. This is the third or fourth since the new government came to power. And even though it's becoming regular for this government, it's a big change from what came before in Athens, which was a city that was often marked by violent anti-government, anti-austerity demonstrations. So this one has been very big. Thousands of people gathering in central Athens outside the parliament to express their solidarity with the government, time to coincide with Monday's meeting of Eurozone finance ministers in Brussels, in which the Greek government and its Eurozone partners are going to try to hammer out a debt deal for Greece's financial future. And the message here on the streets has been that the Eurozone must listen to Greece, that austerity must end, that the debt must be restructured, and that uh, the defiance on the streets here will not be silenced. And U.S. stocks are poised for more upward momentum, even as uncertainty uh, with the Greek debt negotiations keep markets on tenterhooks. U.S. stocks closed at highs on Friday with the Dow above 18,000 and the S&P 500 setting a new record as firming oil prices sent the energy sector higher. Volatility, however, has been the name of the game recently. The VIX oscillated between 15 and 24 for most of 2015, rising over its 
its historical mean of 20 during 15 of the year's 30 trading days so far. But the fear gauge has now fallen to its lowest level, trading below 15 at the close of markets last week. So does this mean that we are going to get back to more stable moves? And how exactly do you play the volatility game? Here's Robert Dahl, who is the chief uh, equity strategist at Naveen Asset Management. We pay attention to companies that have lots of earnings in the U.S. Uh, You focus on companies that have positive free cash flow. And you make sure your portfolio is geared toward the disinflationary environment the world faces. Uh, And then you're going to get more right than wrong, in my opinion, uh, in a world that is increasingly volatile. You know, we got spoiled with such low volatility. Now that it's back to normal, it feels so high to so many of us. So the question is then, is it normal? Most of the measures, if you look at volatility uh, for equity markets, uh, the U.S. in particular, it's about normal after the last three or four years being uh, way below normal. And so people say, when when is it going to calm down and go back to normal? The answer is, no, 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 that wasn't normal. This is. And that's okay. At least in the 30 years I've been doing this, I've seen more volatility to the upside and the downside. So I kind of like volatility. So one surprise factor might be that the U.S. Uh, US's economic growth might actually outperform that of emerging markets. Not out of the question that we could have a U.S. economy that has faster growth than the emerging markets. Who would have thunk it? That last happened in 1999. Uh, the U.S. is uh, operating on more cylinders. It's not perfect, but uh, uh, as you all know, um, between, the unemplo- between the employment situation, the decline in oil, the rise in net worth. Um, you consumers in the U.S. are doing pretty well and spending some money and some of the opposite problems with the rising dollar uh, and, uh, and uh, lower commodity prices are plaguing many of the emerging markets. So, Alex, uh, Bob Dahl says that, you know, this level of uh, volatility is normal and we've just gotten used to something else. But this uncertainty over Greece, does this actually mean that more volatility is on the cards for us this week? Oh, I think... Uh Probably not much because this thing has been discounted by the market for some time now. And last week, actually, we see the VIX and the bond uh, to ease a lot. So, so that means I think that people had discounted this and probably we would see some, unless we see something very dramatic. Otherwise, I think uh, we would not have too much volatility because of this. All right. So speaking of potential drama, uh, Greece is on the cards. Let's bring in our Washington-based uh, international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita. So, Barry, the Greeks said yesterday that they were confident of reaching an agreement in negotiations uh, with Eurozone partners today. They did, however, reiterate that they wouldn't accept any harsh austerity strings in any debt pact. Now, given the lack of headway made by EU leaders on this issue last week, are you at all optimistic that they might reach an agreement on the bailout later today? Yes, I am, Renita. I think that the odds are that they will. I think they may patch something together later in the day when they're meeting because there's a lot of work to be done. But on the one side, you have the German head of the financial bailout fund, Klaus Regling, and who's a very stern fellow, say that the cost of Greece going out of the Eurozone is bigger for Greece and for Europe than staying in. That's quite a compromising statement for a German. Secondly, I think that the signs from Athens are 
that they too uh, will give up some measure of their hardline position. They want to end the austerity, we know that. They want debt forgiveness, we know all that. But they'll work something out. I think the, the tide has turned in the last 36 hours favoring a solution. Of course, anything could happen. Of course, anything could happen. I mean, uh, if that weren't true, if if the tide had not turned, as you suggest, and no deal uh, were reached, then, you know, Greece could be headed for a credit crunch that would force it out of the eurozone. However, um, progress is uh, definitely sort of on your mind. Now, how, how do we define progress? Does this mean that there'll uh, just be further negotiations later in the week? Yes, I think so. And I think flexibility is going to come on the European Union, the Eurogroup side. Everyone is aware in Brussels and in the European capitals that the Greeks have suffered a lot in the last five years and they have almost nothing to show for it. They recognize that. So you can let up on some of these measures. But on the Greek side, the Greeks need money just to pay for essential imports. That money can only come from the creditors who are in the game already. That's the IMF, that's the European Union, and the European Central Bank. So they say they want to do away with that troika. That won't happen. They can give it a new name. But the European Union holds the cards in this poker game. Mm. And I think the Greeks want the money, they need the money, and you can find some compromise in the middle. So the Greeks have brought up the idea of a bridge program to replace bailout. Now, can you explain how this works and what really is the difference? Well, it's complicated, like the whole Greek debt problem is. But if you go back to the 1980s in Latin America, the then U.S. Treasury Secretary Brady came up with Brady Bonds. And that was a mechanism by which the debt that the Latin Americans at the time could not pay could be packaged and essentially forgiven over time. Well, that's what the Greeks want. But that's a complicated thing, and Greece is not yet at that level of performance. They have no credit ability to borrow at all. So they're in worse condition than the Latin Americans were in the 80s. And and, and Barry, that that just sounds like a write-off, is it not? It is. Essentially, it is a write-off. And that's not going to happen yet. The write-off that the Europeans are prepared to consider is if you really make people pay taxes, if you really get your competitiveness back, and we'll reward you with a write-down in this debt. The private sector debt has already been written down. Now it's all owed to the European governments. And, you know, you've got a lot of people saying, hold it, a debt's a debt. So... I think, again, it, uh, the compromise is going to be complicated. It'll take time. That's why I don't think there'll be a comprehensive solution today. But something is in the works. But, you know, those two things that you mentioned, if you really make people pay taxes and if you really get people to be competitive, aren't, aren't they contra, uh, contradictory? Yes, they are. Look, the problem is, as I think a lot of listeners know, Greece didn't belong in the European monetary system at all because they had an inflated lifestyle. They thought they could live like Germans when all they really have is shipping and tourism. (laughs) You know, their agricultural exports are pretty, pretty weak. So they were living too high. Well, if you're going to tighten your belt from a high level, you know, that's painful. And we've seen the political results. So, yeah, I think that, um, you know, the Greeks, the Greeks didn't belong in the system. Now they're in it, but they're only 2% of the GDP. 
So you can handle this problem. But the cards in the poker game are held by the European Union and the Eurogroup ministers. Renita, I think it's important to recognize that even the Irish, the Portuguese, and the Spanish, who all have similar problems to Greece, are lined up against Varoufakis. They don't like anything that he said last week. So mm. unless he comes with a different message, he'll get the same result later today. But Barry, you know, if you say, you know, Greece shouldn't have been in the Eurozone in the first place and they only contribute to 2% of the GDP, what is the difference? Why is it so critical for the other leaders to keep them in? Well, because the European Union has no provision for exit. When that system was developed in Maastricht in the 1990s, there was no provision for its Hotel California from that old 60s song. Mm. You know, you can't go out because the consequences. Some lawyers who have studied this say that, hold it, if you go out of the Eurozone, you go out of the European Union, which the Greeks certainly don't want to do. And by the way, the population wants to stay in the Eurozone as well. So it's the unforeseen consequences of an event that was never foreseen. That's the problem. And people don't want another Lehman situation or another you know, other crisis from Latin America in the 80s to recur while Greece and Europe are having enough problems of their own with a deep, deep recession. So, Alex, uh, based on what Barry is saying, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. What do you make of that? Oh, I think uh, this is uh, what we have. And then uh, you have to live with that. Uh, but I think uh, today, probably, I, like, I agree with Mary that we today would have a um, uh, puzzle solution as, at least, and probably the market would uh, would be stable, I think. All right. Okay, Barry, uh, thank you so much for joining us as always every week on a Monday. That is Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, joining us from Washington, D.C. The Capacity Building Mileage Program provides a wide variety of courses for women who are interested in lifelong learning. Students are empowered to face challenges in daily life with a positive mindset, which enables them to lead a more fruitful life. Courses taught in English in Putonghua are now available. For program details, please call 2915-2380. The time is now 8.17 a.m. And uh, let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up 111 points to 18,024. Australia's ASX is down uh, 13 points to 5,822. And Seoul's Kospi is up 3 points to 1,960. Well, last week, uh, analysts at Citigroup slashed their forecast for crude oil to $20 a barrel by the end of the first quarter or the beginning of the second quarter. The forecast was based on two points, the amount of crude oil in storage and the end of OPEC's role as the so-called swing supplier. But that was before prices began to recover. The West Texas uh, Intermediate Crude Oil for March delivery closed at $52.65 this past Friday, which was uh, above where, where it traded, about what it traded before City's forecast was published. And crude dipped to around uh, $49 last Wednesday before climbing back up to $62 per barrel at the end of last week. So what does all of this mean? Let's, uh, let's ask our next guest, Anthony Carango, who is 
is the head of oil and gas for Asia X Japan at Nomura Securities. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, Renita. So, Anthony, with storage tanks brimming, why have we seen this uh, rise in the price of crude oil? Well, I, I think the the simple answer is there's still a lot of uncertainty in the market. And what people are trying to really gauge is a long-term price of crude oil to both base business planning around and really personal consumption on, on the individual side. And I, there's just been so much noise and news in the market around – the various factors that impact that price, I think really the market's having a tough time settling out on what the real long-term price should be. And that, I think that has a, an impact on on the spot market as well. So given what we've seen in the last few days, uh, do you think that oil could still drop to $20? Yeah, look, I think there are as many opinions as there are people to ask. And I think uh, is it possible to see a $20 oil price? I wouldn't say 20 but into the 20s. It could happen. Uh, there are obviously a lot of factors that impact the day-to-day price of oil, not the least of which is geopolitical factors that are, frankly, unpredictable. And if you saw surprising advancements by ISIS towards Iraqi oil fields that threatened a large uh, component of, of Iraqi supply, you might see oil move dramatically in the opposite direction as well. Certainly, and that could happen uh, at any moment with us without uh, anyone suspecting it. Now, speaking of geopolitical uh, sort of moves, Russia, would you say Russia is currently an attractive market for Asian buyers given sanctions and the inability to raise capital in international markets? Uh, Well, I I think the Russians right now, more so than most, are feeling the, the pinch of low oil prices. And I certainly think that that makes them uh, much more willing to negotiate. And so if you're on the other side of a Russian counterparty, you might feel today that you've got a little bit more power at, at the bargaining table. And we've seen recent uh, recent negotiations and recent trades between tr- China and Russia for long-term mm-hmm. gas contracts that reflect really the culmination of years of negotiation. Uh, and some folks, I think, would say if Russia – wasn't under the kind of geopolitical and economic pressure that it is today, those negotiations might have dragged out considerably longer than they did. Indeed. But, uh, you know, we now have a ceasefire in Ukraine and uh, analysts are expecting or hoping that 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 will last. Could this help uh, the situation? Alex, what do you think? Uh, Do you think the average investor here in Asia should go out and uh, uh, buy in Russia? Oh, I think... uh that probably would still be a little bit early. I, I, I would like uh, to see a bottom first, actually, mm. because uh, uh, oil actually rebounded because of the weakness in dollar, in my view, last week. And also uh, today, uh, at this, two, these few days, we will have the expiry on the uh, March contract. So that is also triggering a technical rebound in the oil prices. So this is still too, too early to call for a bottom d- despite we have a decent rise uh, recently. I think this is more dollar related. So this is still too early to go to, to invest in Russia, I think. So, Anthony, there's, there's a lot of confusion about who the real winners and the real losers are. Okay, in the US, you know, people are paying less uh, for gas when they go to fill up their cars. Um, but yet there is this concern about, you know, falling oil prices. Here in Asia, we're saying, oh, maybe it's a good thing. Who are the winners, you know, in this situation? Well, certainly in the near term, I think anybody that consumes 
crude oil or significant amounts significant amounts of energy uh, in in their business operations or in their personal lives is going to benefit from the lower price, and we've obviously seen that roll through and impact uh, impact gasoline and diesel prices in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, you know, I think who are the losers? Certainly, oil producers and the service companies that cater to them are going to feel a real pinch in the near term. I certainly think that among that crowd, you will have to go then sort through who the individual winners and losers are. The winners will be the folks that are well capitalized, that have a competitive cost position on the overall cost curve, can weather a short-term price decline, uh, and can emerge stronger and more efficient on the back end of this commodity cycle. So just in terms of the short-term winners, you say, you know, the consumer in the U.S., the question is, is gas really as cheap as we think it is? I mean, when you adjust for inflation, today's average gas price of about, uh, what, what is it, $225 per gallon, it, it's roughly the same as it was in 2006. And in early 2002, pump prices were the equivalent of $1.50 today. So... Are we just uh, you know euphoric over not a whole lot? Well, I think it's I think there's two components to that answer. One is what the price is relative to what it used to be, and two is what do you expect the price to be a year from now? And so I, I absolutely agree. Prices are not cheap on a historical basis, but in terms of short term memory, they're very cheap. In you know in 2008, when crude oil prices were reaching 140 dollars a barrel. People began to adjust their lifestyles to a new norm of four dollar per per gallon gasoline in the U.S., and that means structural changes. It means choices of what kind of car you drive to work, where you live, and how far you have to travel to get there. And so, the world very quickly adapted to a new norm of four dollar gasoline. Let's call it, and obviously that's come off a bit. And today, two dollar gasoline, relative to recent memory, relative to recent memory, looks quite inexpensive. Indeed. And the question for most people is, that's all good and fine, but do I make decisions today on $2 gasoline if the really, if the reality is that within a year I'll be back up to $3 or $4? Indeed. I just got back from the U.S. and was uh, thrilled to be able to mm. fill my tank of gas for $25 as opposed to the 50 or 60 which was the case last time around. But uh, I guess you're right, uh, Anthony. We're going to have to make those decisions based on the $2 gasoline today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That is Anthony Carango, and he is the Managing Director and Head of Oil and Gas Asia X Japan at Nomura Securities. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. The time is now 8.26 a.m. And in currencies, one euro will buy you 1.13 U.S. dollars. Uh, the U.S. dollar is currently trading at 118 yen and one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 94 cents. Well, with the recent sanctions on Russia... 
companies are seeking alternative dispute resolution for their businesses. China is apparently on their list. And Hong Kong Arbit- International Arbitration Center's Managing Council, Ruth Stackpole-Moore, just came back from a trip to Russia and uh, joins us today on Money for Nothing to talk more about this. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Renita. So, Ruth, why would companies in Russia want to seek China or Asia as an alternative arbitration center for dispute resolution? So I think this is one of the um, key commercial results that's coming out of the political situation in Russia at the moment. Um, The perspective of Russian companies, they have typically looked to London and the LCIA and Stockholm and also um, the ICC in Paris as the places that they would choose for their arbitrations. Um, Now with the sanctions, they really don't want to do that and they're looking for alternatives. Um, Hong Kong, which obviously has its... um, legal tradition steeped in the UK and the common law becomes very attractive as an option for them um, in looking for an alternative. And it's Hong Kong specifically, not China. That's right, right, it's Hong Kong. So, um, you know, what would the EU and the US, uh, sort of what would their answer be, you know, to this kind of step, you know, if if Hong Kong did become a place for the dispute of these resolutions? Um, As it's generally a commercial matter between the contracting parties, I think the states um, can't really do much about it. Um, And it's something that every individual transaction um, will involve negotiations about. Um, So I don't think that it would affect the political relationship between the US and and Hong Kong or China, for example. Alex, would you see that there might be a further economic impact or an impact on markets at all? Oh, I think uh, for the market, no. Uh, for the economy, probably a little bit, I think. Yeah, because uh, uh, for the market, I think uh, people would not see this kind of uh, boost would be too much, I think. So, Ruth, you just got back uh, from a trip to Russia. Is is there an active move to actually um, solve these uh, or actually uh, embark on a path uh, to, um, you know, have these dispute resolutions here? Or yes. is it just talk? <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, my visit was very well timed in terms of general interest by both large and small Russian companies, state-owned and privately held. Um, they are very much looking for an alternative. They haven't known that much about Hong Kong in the past. I have visited before, but not received the same level of interest that really I, I found everywhere I went this time. Law firms, companies, the like, were very much interested in, in finding out more about what's what we have on offer here in Hong Kong. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ruth Stackpool-Moore, and she's a managing counsel at Hong Kong's International Arbitration Center. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. The Nikkei is up 124 points to 18,037. Australia's ASX index is down 30 points to 5,805, and Seoul's Kospi down just slightly to 1,957. Brent crude oil, $61.00. 90 cents and gold is at $1,228.10. So, Alex, here we are at the end of a Monday. What do we have uh, to look out for? Of course, it's a short week with Chinese New Year um, approaching, but we've got Japan's GDP figures and the Bank of Japan's monetary policy decisions. What else should we be keeping an eye on? Oh, I think Japan, first of all, is would, would be important. Japan actually has improved a lot, a lot last week as well. And I think today's action in the Asian markets will be important as uh, also because we need to see the reaction of the market to the China uh, money expansion figures. Uh, uh, so that, that 
that should be the, the, the focus of this week, I think. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Alex Wong, Director of Ample Capital and our regular Monday co-host on Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, signing off this morning. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with fog, sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 96%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Jihadists in Libya allied to the Islamic State militant group have released a video purporting to show the beheading of a group of Egyptian Coptic Christians. 21 Copts were kidnapped in Libya several weeks ago. At least 10 are seen being killed in the video. The Egyptian president has announced seven days of mourning. From Cairo, the BBC's Ola Guerin reports. The five-minute video shows hostages in orange jumpsuits being marched along a beach, each accompanied by a masked militant. The men are made to kneel before they are simultaneously beheaded. Most were from a poor village in Upper Egypt, where some relatives fainted on hearing the news. A caption accompanying the video made it clear the hostages were targeted because of their faith. It referred to the victims as people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church. Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has convened